Hi, I'm Max Forsyth, founder of Conversation Selection and host of the Comms Coffee Club podcast. Welcome to this week's episode with the wonderful Natasha Plowman, uh, who owns her own comms consultancy, Spinning Red, uh, but throughout an illustrious career which started off in political communications uh, in her own country of Australia, um, where we have a really good chat actually around some of the differences between Australian and UK politics and the influence on public affairs and corporate affairs, uh, and then through to her journey in-house um, at Diageo, where she led communications in the Africa region. So we have a great chat around supply chain comms. Uh, and then also we talk about sustainable finance as well and how the financial services industry um, can play a role in sustainability and also how that translates into communications as she spent a number of years at HSBC. Um, so without further ado, let's get into it. And don't forget as well to like and subscribe to the podcast on YouTube. Uh, all your favourite podcast listening app, and don't forget to join our Patreon as well. So, let's get into it. So, Natasha Plowman, welcome to the Comms Coffee Club podcast. Thanks for having me, Max. Pleasure. How's your week? The week is gone. It's half term um, in the UK at the moment. So the the juggle that every parent has is definitely yeah. in full flow. But, you know, one more day or two more days if we count today. And then we're kind of back to normality, which is good. Smashing. Super. Right. Let's get straight into it. So winding the clock back, how did you get into communications? Well, I'm an activist at heart. I think is probably how I got into communications. So I grew up in quite a political family in Australia. And, okay. you know, I spent many of my, my teens and my late teens kind of marching around various causes and, and particularly big ones around climate change, which were still being marched upon in the 80s and the early 90s when I was in, in senior school. Um, I then yeah. travelled for quite a bit, so that was, you know, the typical Australian uh, rite of passage was to kind of come to Europe and travel, which gave me really good insight into kind of different countries and markets before I went across, I went back to university in my kind of early to mid-20s. Um, I kind of fell into communications as it is now because where I really wanted to be was in politics. So, and okay. that's where that activist bit came in so my first, yep. very first proper job was working for an Australian senator um, and then I worked for a trade union in the kind of comms and policy so I think particularly at that trade union it was about fair trade and, and okay. getting, holding companies to account and anyone who's as old as I am will remember the various marches and protests against the OECD at the time and particularly looking at fair trade and the and stopping mm. the race bottom of companies moving um, moving their, their production to the lowest common denominator of wages, which mm. still happens, but it was a big issue, particularly in the in the kind of the mid-90s mid or the 2000s as well. Mm. So mm. that's where I started um, and then kind of came to the UK in the early 20, um, in the early 2000s, 2003. So I have been here for tw over 20 years. Yeah. Keep my accent. And um, worked in charities for a while in communications and that really cemented my, my kind of path of my ongoing career. Um, and my first big corporate job um, where I worked at Coke Enterprises, which is the bottling partner of Coca-Cola, um, yes. which was a Quite a shock to the system after being an activist charity worker with lots of ideals, but it taught me a hell of a lot, which was really interesting. And then I went into Diageo um, for seven years, which is kind of really where I understood and learnt um, what the role of business was in society and, and kind of honed my mm. craft, I suppose, as communications. Mm. Great. 
Um, and I've got a question just on just on the Australian politics, if you don't mind. Um, as a Brit who is, you know, kind of born here, grown up here, pretty familiar with the UK spectrum in politics. Um, don't know a huge amount about Aussie politics, except for little bits around election time. Obviously, there was the recent, um, yeah, kind of they had their own sort of Brexit referendum um, mm. uh, on the Aboriginal piece, which I don't know much about, so I'm not going to make it's, any comment on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it's a, that yeah. was a... Sorry, yeah, but what's the... Yeah, I guess, is Australian politics, is it similar to the UK? Is it different in any marked ways or...? Um, look, the Australian parliamentary system was pretty much based on the UK Westminster model, but there are a couple of fundamental differences. One is we have compulsory voting, which means when you turn 18, you are required to, to vote. And therefore, wow, I didn't know that. In, 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 inherently must get involved in the political process. So you can't opt out in the same way. Wow. Another one is we have a fully elected second house. So that's the Senate. And you have yes. different states who kind of have people. Um, kind of elected into the Senate when there is a, a general election as well. We also yeah. have, but the, the passage of legislation is exactly the same as far as kind of comes in from the lower house, the House of Representatives, then the scrutiny um, from the Senate, and then it comes back to that lower house to be passed. And depending on who has the balance of power, then you'll see um, the kind of the impact of that on legislation. Yes. We also have kind of a federal system where you have three tiers of government, which is ridiculous for a country the size, the population the size of Australia. So yes. you have local government who deals with the local issues like they do in the UK. You have the states, which have a kind of quite a lot of power and, and kind of in, in distribute the money that will come in federally. Okay. And then you have the federal government, which is the one that kind of has the main legislation across the whole country, but then has to work with the states as well to make sure. And when you have different parties in different in the different states federal then you can have quite a lot of conflict between how things are run but you know and the states and the and the federal government have been working together quite a lot more but there has been a, a more of a lean towards labor um in the last few years but nothing is it. i lost my right to vote um because i've been here for 20 years and this is really yes. frustrating for me particularly the most recent elections um because i don't live in the um here anymore and that's quite unusual and i think that's something that australia needs to look at the people who still hold australian passport but may not live yes. there long term but still can't vote every other country still allows their citizens to still vote that's interesting and do you um and even though you live here, you know, do you get taxed on any of your UK income by the Australian government or anything? Okay, I mean, so they've taken away your right to vote, but it's not—it's not like you're look, overly I'm, impacted here. Yeah, no, I know, but it's still very frustrating when you have kind of awful, um, you know, divisive campaigns that you had mm. just recently around the referendum. You know, and that was a completely different one to Brexit because whatever happened with Brexit was, you know, that had had impact on everyone. Um, regardless of the oh, you want mm. yes or no, there was kind of a universal impact on the entire population. The no vote um, created a division and it created a kind of, you know, and it showed Australia up around that divisiveness 
for the impact will be a very, very small proportion of people and we could mm. have had the opportunity to really demonstrate and understand our history as Australia and we didn't take that opportunity. And unfortunately, the opposition party used this as a real political um, football and like the slogan of if you don't know, you um, vote no was really quite a sad way of, of speaking to the electorate and not engaging with them on the issues. And again, we have the same examples of misinformation. We have the same examples of um, of lies being spread around, and mm. you know, it's a real shame that that that's what happened. And I think, you know, the the yes campaign, you know, in the end came out with some uh, really lovely words around, mm. you know, what they felt about it. But this should not be the end of the reconciliation we need with our history as Australia, which isn't a mm. bright history in lots of ways as well. No, yeah, and um, and actually. I think when we come to talk about it later in yeah in your more recent career around the CSR sustainability piece and companies having an opinion, yeah I think in politics um, yeah the idea of um, being able to sit on the fence and say if you don't know vote no I morally I I have a bit of an issue with that is you know if you're in politics you should you should you should have an opinion and even if and even if it's opinion that I don't agree with I. I'd want to hear it. Um, no, yeah, and it really, and it, and it was a really, it was a really cynical kind of, um, you know, populist exercise to to go down that route, and you know, and you saw it, um, you know, regurgitated by people saying, "Well, I don't understand it," which is like, "We'll find out," <laughs> or you know, and this is why you know Australia is. Yeah. Great. And it does have compulsory voting, so it should, you know, encourage people to find out a bit more information. And they can't say there wasn't; it was compl complicated because it really wasn't complicated. It was simply acknowledging that mm. um, you know, the, the, the First Nations people should be consulted and should be able to um, have a, you know, be part of decision making that affects them, and and to recognise. Mm is that they are the First Nations of Australia and to kind of then start that process of reconciliation of history. But, you know, Australia has quite a dark history and dark past in lots of ways, which we won't go into here. And I think that's mm. the conversation that needs to start happening. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, you know, without going into too much, I think, um, you know, when I think about sort of back to COVID and all the COVID lockdowns, et cetera, and, um, yeah, they were they were quite harsh here in the UK, but I think on a global level, Australia was was right up there <laughs> certainly was yeah. it uh was it the state of was victoria it, was it victoria that were that were literally like closed the borders to other states so that, so that would be like here probably like the greater london authority <laughs> locking down greater london um and not letting anyone in from the home counties yeah i mean it, uh, you, yeah. i think i really hope there's a, a better conversation around you know, what happened and the wide implications of what different countries decided to do. This probably mm, won't be mm. the last time we have a kind of, you know, a pandemic, but the use of fear, um, which was everywhere, um, was something that I think yes. we, we really need to kind of look back on and kind of see is that the right way for us to treat our populations. And uh, and I think it's really sad there's real knock-on effects that I don't think we're talking enough about, both for young children and also mm. for um, mm. You know, for older people, um, you know, so many older people have just lost their, their zest for yeah. life and their kind of yeah. desire to travel and do things. So, yeah, there's lots of – Australia lots of is interesting, but I haven't lived there for 20 years, so I'm definitely not mm. an expert mm. in, mm. <laughs> in everything. Well, yeah, no, it, it's interesting. And, and actually, yeah, you know, there's probably lots of knock-on effects, um, you know, it, even around sort of corporate communications. And I think if you look at, you know, what a lot of governments in here in the UK, you know, they had their – 
it was nicknamed the PSYOPs unit, but, you know, they literally had a unit of behavioral scientists who were there going, okay, well, if we say this, what's the reaction of the population going to be? And, you know, there's, there's lots of similarities, you know, with marketing and communications in terms of how you advertise or how you communicate something. And, you know, you do think about what the impact of that's going to be. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah, and it's an interesting one. I mean, like behavioural science is, is a fascinating area. Again, you know, some of the, the biggest campaign I worked on, um, which really got my understanding of behavioural change, um, was when I worked on This Girl Can um, for a couple of months in, in 2017. And, you know, and the, the note, behavioural science is understanding people's behaviour, understanding what drives them, understanding what, you know, why people make the choices they make. And, of course, you know, that's a real, um, a really important brand building exercise to understand who your customer is, why they make different choices, and when you can influence them on either their path to purchase or the decision-making they have to purchase or, or, or kind of align with your brand. So that understanding behavioural science is, you know, an inherent part of how brands do it. When it becomes a manipulation based on fear, based on, um, you know, kind of people's greatest um, things that they worry about, and I think we've seen mm. a bit of that on some of the environment communications, which I don't, it kind of either has two effects. You have people hunker down and ignore it because they can't deal with it, which is an understandable response, or yep. you get people who get so caught up in, you know, the, what could be that they kind of lose rationality as well. So the way we mm. use way we use you know these insights we have into human behavior is a big responsibility and you know and sometimes it's abused and we need to kind of really question that and I know that there is a lot of um there are organizations that are questioning how we use behavioral science for good rather than behavioral science mm. for, to kind of drive a different change yeah that yeah that fear point is very interesting particularly around the environmental climate change piece and you know, corporates and, um, <clears throat> you know, and I think a lot of what the impact of that has had, um, you know, I found it very interesting, you know, my LinkedIn feed a few weeks ago when, when Rishi Sunak announced the pushback of EVs back from 2030 to 2035. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to name names, but there were, <laughs> there were, there were, there were some very senior communications people who, um, yeah, it, Honestly, my LinkedIn feed was like he just announced the end of the world. And you think, diff yeah. yeah, you know, that's the emotional side of the brain. Yeah, and it is. A bit, isn't it? And, um, but he showed a complete lack of leadership rather than kind of really double down into what the commitments could be and really look at why the take-up hasn't been to the level it has been, which has definitely come largely from inaction from government as well as kind of inaction from different, different um, actors to make sure we have the foundational uh, infrastructure to support EVs. And I think, mm. you know, where does that responsibility lie? When, as far as when you... Sorry. No, 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 go on, go on. It's, I mean, in, the, the, and the infrastructure needs to be built in. We need to create a market mm. and we need to create mm. a market that is sustainable for business to kind of buy into it. And if that infrastructure and that market isn't created, then you're tinkering around the edges of innovation and that's not going to get us to the scale we need to get to. And I think that's where we need to have a bit more of a grown-up conversation around what's the future look like and how, mm. what's the role of business in this transition that we need to make. Mm. Um, and what's mm. the role of government in supporting, driving and enabling that transition to happen? And by kind mm. of taking away, and I completely understand the rational reasons why they kind of split um, five years, but in, in you know, 
but in parallel, what are they doing to accelerate mm. the change that needs to happen? Mm. You know, the, the air is polluted and this is one way to kind of, um, you know, lessen mm. air pollution. Mm. We, you know, mm. we have to kind of look at different ways to use transport more positively, mm. but we mm. need to make sure that businesses are able to step into that space and have a market that they can be profitable and grow with. And government's role is to enable that to happen. And mm. from a communications perspective, you know, that was, you know, this populist way of making the environment and plant in the changes we need to see in the planet a divisive issue is scary. Mm. And I think mm. businesses mm. have been right to kind of say, your role is to create the environment for us to succeed. And you're, you have set a policy as we have agreed to, um, to, to look mm. at the transition that we all need to make for it to have less impact on the planet, be it energy use, looking at waste, looking at consumption, all of those things have less impact on the planet, as well as how we can treat our people better and have a better mm. impact on the people that work mm. for us or the people, the suppliers that are in our supply chain. And, you know, using this as a political football is just going to get, is going to be good for no one and that's mm. a mm. change. So hopefully we can rise above that and have a better conversation around where we want to see the future. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree on that. And I think, um, yeah, you know, the lack of, the lack of joined up thinking in government and and wider government bodies and NGOs, but in, this probably goes back a long a long time, really. But yeah, the lack of thought or investment in the foundational infrastructure. You know, they've gone for a lot of these shiny policies previously that sound great, and then <laughs> and then got to a point where it's like, oh, we don't have the capacity on the grid. Uh, yeah. Mm, uh, yeah. So you know, it's just like, what? How do you not think about this before? Yeah. Mental. But it's like everything. It's it's become rather than and this is part of the, like the, the populist politics that we're in at the moment, it's become so short termism. And, you know, there was a whole conversation years ago when Unilever said we're not going to announce um our kind of results quarterly because we're going to start kind of looking more to the long term. And that was under Paul Polman's leadership and uh, it, may, it may have changed since. But that was mm. a really interesting conversation around the businesses, again, were also very short-termist. Politics, very short-termist. And we the situations and the issues we're trying to tackle are fundamentally not short-term issues. They are mm. generational change and it, beca and it becomes multifaceted. And so we need to have a look at that long-term. You know, And I think for me, part of it is, you know, what's really hitting home is when, you know, my daughter's now kind of, you know, nearly 10. She's understanding what's happening in the world. She kind of is aware they have mm. conversations at school around things. You know, and I have no idea what the world of work is going to look like when she in 10 years' time when she enters into it or, you know, the, where the future is going to be. And I go from one time, sometimes in hope that things will kind of turn around, but there's no silver bullet to any of this. And then other times just kind of, you know, oh, my God, <laughs> you know, what yeah. is going to happen in 10, 15, 20 years? And I look back on what was the world like 20, 30 years ago, you know, over 30 years ago when I was leaving school. And, you know, things have changed, but also there's a lot of familiarity as well. So, mm. you know, mm. we are on a precipice. Things change slowly. We need to get people together and we need to have a better honest conversation rather than using kind of wedge politics or divisiveness to kind of drive us apart. And that's the scary bit around where we are now. Mm. Yes. and. Um... Yeah, I, I guess bringing it back a little bit tighter to sort of your career in the communications aspect, I guess. Yeah, when you when you went into your first corporate gig um, at Coca-Cola, which I think the bottling company is now, is it Coca-Cola Hellonic Bottling Company, isn't it, I think? Well, that, um, yeah, that's the, the no, Greek part. That's but, the, yeah. I'm sorry, the Greek it's part. The um, yeah, but 
um, you know, obviously, you know, huge conglomerate, massive company, massive business, huge global supply chain, um, you know, right, right, you know, right at the, I guess, right at the coal face, if you were, of global supply chains, really, when you think about it. Um, yeah, talk me through um, sort of communications there and particularly with that, you know, what it was like at the time looking at that long term, the ESG, CSR piece from a communications point of view. What, yeah, how much of that was playing into, into the sort of corporate marketing and comms strategy? I mean, that's where I really started to understand um, the role of business in society. So, and it's kind of interesting today on LinkedIn, I was commenting on someone's post and was talking about fast fashion and the supply chains and how we need to get a steady supply of fabric to use recycled fabric and, and to reduce the impact on fast fashion. Whole mm, other issue, mm, really important. Mm. But you know, the same, and it made me reflect that kind of when I was at when I was at Coke, that was the time where we started talking about how you know they recognised, particularly the bottler, they need to have supply a supply steady supply chain of plastic to come in that they could use recycled content in the bottles. Now that's a given. Now we all know that all of our plastic consumables, particularly our drinks and other plastic, contains a high element of recycled content. But at the time, they didn't have the steady supply. They didn't have the steady supply of plastic because the councils weren't collecting it um, consistently and there wasn't the infrastructure to take that plastic and recycled and then be able to put it into their supply chain so that was yeah. a big issue around how they used to like lobby local government but also educate people around recycling which you kind of think is yes. a given now but then again people don't yes yeah, so they're happens. recycling out now don't they yeah 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 you think, but then people don't also take the next step around, you know, we've latched onto recycling and the three elements were always reduce, reuse, recycle. Recycle was seemed to be the easiest solution and that's we've seen, okay, tick the box, I've recycled this, aren't I good, halo on my head. And yet reduction and reuse are still fundamental parts of the triangle that we need to tackle a lot more. Mm. We're not doing enough around reduction. Um, we're still in that consumerist kind of way of operating. And I think that's something that is going to be coming more. We're talking more about reuse, particularly around re um, circularity, which I think is a really interesting area um, to ensure that businesses look at their supply chains and how they can have more circular function within it. But mm. at that time, that was where we were focused. And the other bit that was really interesting at the time from a CSR perspective was how we market to children. Um, you know, that was a time in the UK where we were talking around, mm. um, you know, sugars and kind of high sugar content and how we market to children. So there was a lot of, and there was a time when big companies were signing up to various codes. And for me, when I went into Diageo, when, of course, marketing to children is a key plank of a responsible marketing approach for alcohol, there was those synergies across the piece. What's interesting mm. is I don't see food companies learning enough from alcohol around how they've adapted and how they change their marketing to be more responsible and to ensure that they're kind of using not marketing to children. Alcohol has done this very, very well. Um, and yeah. they've kind of been uh, for a long yeah. time. And, and talk me through how it does it very well. Um, we know they've got very, you know, of course, you've got legislative codes, you've got international codes and bodies that are on the companies, like for Diageo, of course, they had the Diageo marketing code. And that often went further than a lot of, um, a lot of the, the national government's legislation. And mm -hmm. they work in tandem with the kind of the governing bodies as well and the ASA in different ways. But it, it's, it's not just about where you target your advertising and like think like debates around watersheds or debates around where advertising is placed, but it's the Content yeah. that 
use in your advertising as well. You know, and my, I had a really interesting job at Diageo where I was, you know, responsible for kind of signing off from on the code perspective, um, the marketing across Europe. And, you know, so working with brands around kind of does this character, does this language, do these colours, do these, all of these things, could they be perceived in the spirit of the code to be marketing to children? And, mm-hmm. you know, so we had some really interesting conversations. Humour is really hard because, you know, you want to make you, you wouldn't do slapstick humour that would be appealing to children, but you can use humour in different ways. And, you know, mm-hmm. some of the ads that I worked on, um, which kind of won't go into full detail now, were kind of, you know, really trying to tread that line because keeping the spirit of the code, but also keeping to the brand ethos yes. and the brand tone of voice. And, you know, and, from a, you know, coming back to communications, you know, that is the breadth of communications roles. Um, you know, mm. a lot of people think communications, mm. just press releases and newsletters and, you know, and it's not. It's being the conscience and the voice within a business. It's being it's being that person who brings the outside into a business and asks the difficult questions. It's being that kind of person who looks outside and kind of sees where things might be going into the future to preempt issues, crisis. And I think that's mm. the real skill set of communications. And throughout my career, starting as an activist in the kind of, you know, in Australia mm. and in charities mm. through to mm. being in corporate, you're able to kind of understand where that where that lands. And I, and that's what I love about comms is that breadth of, of different roles and different um, hats you can really wear um, within a business. But it's always about being that kind of critical friend. Yes. With your, yeah, I guess with your activist sort of hat on, but finding that, finding that balance there when you go into somewhere. Um, how did Bud Light get it? Get it so wrong? I think it's a really interesting. It's a difficult one, and I'm kind of trying to gather my thoughts on what what went then on. Then I can imagine it was an isolated, small Instagram ad. They were briefed. How can we? broaden our appeal there's a lot of talk around um kind of of, of trans people being visible and rights mm. which is absolutely mm. a correct conversation that we should be having um and then it was a small ad and they were deciding to kind of test the waters and see how they can broaden it out all good that's absolutely fine how they then responded after the fact of both throwing the marketeer under the bus um you know it was used again i go back to that whole idea of that political football it was used as a divisive mm-hmm. wedge by people who have a particular agenda and you know bud light could have stood back and say hey you know we have an ethos of equality and openness and inclusion and you know People, um, and the, these are all people who drink Bud Light. You don't own Bud Light and we can, we, you know, we should be able to, um, talk to different groups of people and it's fine. Um, and we abhor, you know, the, this language you're using around divisiveness. And they didn't. They kind of stayed silent. They didn't really say anything and they threw the, the marketeer under the bus. And, you know, that's where if you're going to make, um, you know, statements which are divisive, unfortunately, because that's the world we live in, mm-hmm. then you mm-hmm. have to plan for those both sides. And your corporate body language is can you withstand it? And the amount of conversations I've sat around tables where people say, well, they might not like it, they won't like us. And it's like, okay, they may not. Can we mm. either A, respond, or B, you know, can we withstand that conversation? And if you can't because you want everyone to like you, then it's better to kind of be on the vanilla side of things and not actually have a voice and opinion on anything. And this is where I think business has got to make some really hit, um, key choices. 
I think mm. and I believe passionately that businesses should have an opinion on lots of things and they should reflect their employee base, their customer base. They should be able to kind of tread these lines without, um, you know, being fearful of someone not liking them or someone criticising them. And often when you mm. find people hunker down is because they've they've done something and they haven't had that critical friend of a comms person scenario plan what the implications could be and prepare them for maybe a backlash or maybe mm. they haven't gathered that support around them and I think that's where um, Bud Light kind of maybe needed to listen to their comms person a bit more closely but that being said mm. close to it don't know people in it so there's no 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 of course implications yeah. around it yeah no it's an interesting one I um yeah, you know, I think, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's probably the, well, uh, it's one of the tightrope issues for companies at the moment. And, um, yeah, I think it's definitely a challenge trying to get, trying to get that right or, um, you know, the tone or maybe the vehicle of delivery um, right. You know, I think, you know, my own personal opinion, yeah, if they want to, if they wanted to say something, absolutely no problem with that. Um, I think, you know, sort of Dylan Mulvaney themselves is a, um, is a bit of a spicy character and um, maybe that was the wrong, wrong person to use for it. I don't know, but yeah, it's certainly, um, yeah, it's certainly but how they treated her. wanted. But mm. how they treated her after the fact as well. I mean, again, this is only what oh, I'm kind of yes. on social media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know that they didn't contact her. That her, the you know she was getting death threats. That she was kind of you know if you're going to use influencers, if you're going to use talent, then you have an obligation to to kind of recognise and support them as much as you are to um you know your brand. And you know that's yeah, another. Completely. If you talk about responsible marketing, that's a mm. key point of that as well. Oh yeah, no, completely. And um, yeah, you know the whole sort of cancel culture piece. Um, yeah, you know you might have people that you know, really, you know, that really sort of rally against, you know, what you've done and what you've said. But yeah, you do have to be strong and just say, look, we understand you've got an issue with the whole context of what we're doing, but leave Dylan out of it or, you know, kind of leave yeah. our staff out of it. it yeah. You know, it's not, it's not their fault. We carry the can as the brand. Fine. But yeah, uh, yeah, that's another thing I think as well. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Kind of you're really right on that is yeah brands whatever they want to say don't let individual members of staff or influencers carry the can for a brand who is much bigger he's got a lot more money and there's a lot more people in that business than just the one or two people that you chuck under the bus so i think yeah you're really right with that i think yeah, yeah. yes and behind your people is really important and a big issue with, and again, like the role of comms people as that kind of critical friend and the person who asks the difficult questions is groupthink. And you see it a lot. You see it in a lot of businesses and particularly where people have been in business for a very long time, have been in the company for a very long time. There's a culture, there's a history, there's a shared kind of journey you've all gone on when you've worked in companies for a very long time. And sometimes bringing someone in with that fresh perspective and that ability to kind of ask those questions and break through that group thing that you inherently got is a really valuable exercise. You know, and that's part of the work that I've been doing a lot more of is kind of being that person who comes in, kind of observes what the conversations are happening, looks at the strategy that you've got, kind of 
kind of picks through the strategy and kind of sees where there might be kind of risks or there might be opportunities or where you could do things differently or where you could do things um a bit more boldly and you know Mm. but also being conscious because I've worked in big companies is that you know the people are caught in the cycle of protecting themselves not sure around the politics with internally within a company and sometimes having that independent voice can be that support that you need and you know and particularly if you don't have comms at the top table and a comms person that is that critical friend at the top table then Mm. you really need to bring that if you want to do something in a bold way or do something a different way or you you sense in the future that you are going to be part of a wider divisive conversation then you need to get your ducks in the row and you need to plan for that um and i think mm. for me why i'm passionate about the work i do is that you know i'm able to ask those difficult questions and i like the ability to ask those difficult questions as well but then look at what the strategy can be in the future and to yes. break out a group think you know and i think this is where i kind of have really gotten comfortable with my my activist at heart piece is that you know i'm drawing on experience of of working in organizations and being part of groups that have you know that may be the ones who are going to attack you and i think or maybe the ones who are going to try and kind of unpick what you're doing and is it effective impactful and the right thing or is it just spin and mm. so mm. there is a real opportunity for for a lot of businesses to kind of look at things differently yes and your experience you know, has ha, has taken you all over the world in many respects. Um, a lot of the companies you've worked for have very wide global supply chains, often in very underdeveloped and poor countries. Um, you know, lots of African sort of countries in the Far East, etc. How do how do, how do companies with those you know global supply chains that you know perhaps have them in yeah in those underdeveloped countries that are um you know perhaps not as developed on human rights they're very open to corruption etc how do you deal with that from a communications perspective yes i am um, i headed up comms for the africa region when i was at diageo and that was it's probably one of it, it's it's a while ago now but it's still one of the big highlights of of, of my career as far as my understanding and knowledge and and some of the relationships that I developed at that time. And mm. there are a couple of things. I mean, the, the whole term, our licence to operate, was really part of the conversation around Diageo's role in particularly developing markets in Africa. And keep mm. in mind that, you know, Diageo was made up of um, companies within Africa, which they had bought, that had massive footprints. So I did a big piece of work in, in Kenya at that time. And, you know, they own Tusker. Tusker is, if anyone's been to Kenya, it is the beer of of Kenya, and okay. you know, it had like you know, ninety six or ninety plus percent, um, you know, penetration rate. And they were trying to also bring kind of like the the Diageo spirits involved, and yes. you know, they also and the license to operate was very much around. And this is where philanthrop- philanthropy, CSR, and kind of mm. business mm. risk all converge in the same place. Is they had a lot of issues around water so they kind of developed and they funded a lot of programs around water and water usage and making sure the water wouldn't um that the in the production of beer wouldn't be such a strain on the economy same Mm. with grains that they would grow so there was innovations around sorghum which is a kind of a a grain that didn't consume as much water and was more locally known so that would be in the beer so you Mm. needed to kind of innovate and kind of work within the market 
confines you had. Um, as far as, and one thing that I, I really found interesting is, you know, because I'm part of a global company and we had very, very strict, um, you know, stances around corruption, you know, the, and the team were very involved in that and the team were talking mm. around you know, they understood the local market and they understood the relationships with government, but they also understood the global company and the reputation they had. And yeah. so for them, you know, Diageo was always very above board and they were operating in South Sudan, they're operating quite a lot, in, you know, in Nigeria and Guinness and Nigeria is absolutely huge. And so there was very, and when I come back to the license to operate was know your community, know the, mm. the people who work for you, um, mm. have, you know, don't, just come in as the, the the British company coming into your market and, and throwing your weight around, but work with your local mm. market really effectively who know more than you will ever know. And mm. and you know, and make sure that you're kind of investing in and having a light touch on on the market as well as being able to grow the brands that you need to grow as well. So mm. so the water use that we did in the um the the, the CSR projects that we did were kind of really successful, um, as well as kind of innovating in the market to make sure that they were um, having a bit more of a light touch around you know, the, the, how, how the brands were being produced, which is an important part of supply chains. Mm, mm. And how can brands and how can brands get that story out there and get that coverage? And I say that from a, you know, this is a purely layman's, you know, viewpoint. And this is not talking about Diageo specifically, but if I think of most of the stuff I've read either in the papers or whether it's a panorama documentary or a dispatches documentary, it's normally always linked to either things like modern slavery or corruption, et cetera, et cetera, rub wages. Blah. Um, yeah, supply chain. Supply chain. Through in the media, right? Supply chains are fascinating. And I think anyone who's kind of worked in comms and big businesses who doesn't kind of talk to their supply chain director and understand, you know, that they are the engine room of your brand, particularly if you're producing products. Obviously, it's very different to, to services. Yes. So if we focus on FMCG and products, you know, there's, a, I mean, but one of the problems we've got with supply chains, and this is going to be the change around um, more visibility and transparency that the kind of legislations around scope three reporting are going to be incredibly important because you have to understand your different tiers within your supply chain. Yes, as a big brand, you will know your tier one suppliers and you'll know who you're buying from. When you get to tier two, it gets a little bit murkier. When it gets to tier three and beyond, which is kind of the supplier of the supplier of the supplier, you know, understanding and knowing how they operate, what products they use, how they employ their people is something that brands have to take as a responsibility. So there should always be good communications people within the supply chain to help understand that visibility and transparency needs that you're required of, that there's quite mm. of you. And mm. there's, again, no silver bullet to this because it's about, but there's a lot of innovation happening within supply chains to get to that transparency and visibility and preparation for the reporting requirements of scope three. Mm. And but it's it's just it's it's a non-negotiable now. You know we've had too many um, incidences incidences which I don't think enough brands have learned from where they suddenly there's a big issue like we had Rana Plaza and that was gone well over ten years ago now, and a lot of brands mm. had no idea their their their, their garments were being made there. Mm. Mm. That's not an excuse anymore. The technology. Mm. 
now and we've got Google innovating in this space. We've got, um, you know, a lot of other companies innovating and startups to get that transparency right. So you need to kind of bring your supply chain with you and the changes. And actually, when it comes to the impact you have as a company, it is, yes. it's your supply chain. And that's the area that will kind of, that will give you the, the changes and kind of lessen your impact on the planet. Um, mm. Mm. Yeah, and uh, whilst whilst technology, broadly speaking, as a sector, has had a has had a rough couple of years off the back of probably some overexpansion of COVID, um, supply chain tech is actually a subsector that's um, it's doing very well. Um, and um, yeah, clearly, it's uh, yeah, and maybe some of it is driven by the regulation, of course. But yeah, I think there is also the yeah, you talk about the reputational risk piece there is absolutely massive for brands, right? Huge. Um, oh, absolutely. And, you know, and also I think the, the language we need to start using as comms professionals is less about this is what we need to do to tick a box or this is what we need to do because someone's asked you, but this is what we need to do from a reduction in the impact on planet because it makes business sense. Risk language is incredibly important and the way that we talk around where the business needs to go in the future. Climate shocks are going to impact your supply chain. So how do you preempt those and how do you understand where those climate shocks might come from? These shocks from kind of other issues like wars and geopolitics and, you know, is also an area where we need to be a little bit better understanding of where that's going to impact your supply chain. So you have to know where you're going to have an impact on your supply chain to have to maintain business resilience. And it all comes back down to how we treat our planet. Um, everything comes from some kind of natural or, or raw material in some way. And if you are not supporting the planet eco, planetary ecosystem, then obviously some of the products that we have are going to be impacted. And when it gets impacted, it increases in prices to the end consumer. Mm. We're, seeing mm. with cocoa, we're seeing the same with any so many food products. Food. I mean, this is. Oh, I mean, the Russia-Ukraine. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the Russia-Ukraine war. If anyone wasn't aware of just how many raw food products <laughs> rely on stuff that comes out of that part of the world, they do now. I mean, it is unbelievable how much comes out of there, and obviously, not as much has been coming out of there over the last couple of years, and hence why we've seen the. Yeah, the rapid inflation in 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 basic food materials, never mind the end product. And um yeah, that also has a knock on impact on the poorest in in yeah. in society as well. So yeah, it all comes back to the same thing, yeah. doesn't it? It's all interconnected. And, you know, we talk about ecosystems for a reason because that's what they are. And you can't just kind of silo off different parts of the business or different parts of the economy and say there's not going to be an impact because there is in some ways. You know, and again, coming back to comms, comms is the great dot connector. So comms is, mm. you know, your ability to see across your business and give you that red thread of where that connectivity will be. One of the things I love most about kind of working comms again is that breaking down of silos. So how, you know, we see it kind of in society, we see it in businesses, everyone operates in a silo because it's easy and it's safe and we kind mm. of know where we're at. But, you know, mm. what we've seen in the last few years in particular is those silos will infiltrate each other and they'll have kind of negative impacts and we need to have a lens that kind of sees where that will have an impact and and make sure that we're 
we're preparing ourselves for the future, looking at those risk scenarios that, that we may have, look at the how do we mm. um, work with different actors and flex um, either our supply chains or um, our business to be able to be responsive and to be able to respond to those external shocks. Um, it shouldn't, and maybe it's my, my, my own naivety or optimism, but these things shouldn't take people by surprise the way they do. And, you know, so why is it? always taking people by surprise. Um, so what are we putting in place as businesses to be a lot more prepared for all of those shops mm. coming down the line? And, mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think there's also, a, um, you know, my view is there's also a responsibility on communications teams and companies to you know, not just go for the headline statement but to also show their maths show their thinking so you know and be able to you know and be able to explain succinctly you know why they're doing this transition why they think this is the right thing to do you know really being able to show their workings rather yeah. than just going for the emotive bit at the end bit because then you get people on both sides going oh, it's not possible <laughs> you know it's <laughs> yeah and do you know what I mean by that it, yeah. No, look, I do. And it's, uh, I got, I remember writing a blog a few years ago and I was getting very frustrated with all these kind of lofty targets being, being announced by all these companies around what they're going to do in 20, 30, 50 years time and, you know, not having a plan. And in some way, like, mm. you know, when Marks and Spencer's came out with plan A and saying we've got plan A because there is no plan B, you know, but they were open and honest and transparent with, we know we need to do this. These are our targets. We've got no idea how to get them, but we're we're investing in the right people and teams and structures to get us to where we need to get to. Mm. That hasn't been replicated in the same way, I don't think, with most other companies. They've kind of put the lofty targets in and hidden away from the fact that they don't necessarily have a plan. And not having a plan is fine because also you need a plan that's able to be adapted to what is changing and new information mm. comes in place. And, you know, and I think there's a big onus on people who want businesses, myself included, to move faster and to do more, is to kind of recognise that things don't happen overnight and there's always new information coming. So if someone's, mm. and, you know, and we bring up Lego, for example, Lego kind of came up with, you know, we want to kind of, you know, have no virgin plastic within our, um, our supply chain and our bricks anymore, or not, sorry, not use fossil fuel created plastic. And then a couple of weeks ago, they came out and said, we, we've tried to, we've said that we wanted to innovate around how we could do this. But then when we looked at it properly, the impact in the greenhouse gas emissions of us making that change would be greater than what mm. we've found. So, mm. We don't know what we're doing next, but this is where we're at at the moment. And, you know, and from the sustainability community, I think I was kind of resoundingly applauded because it had an openness and a transparency and an honesty without fear of that they're constantly learning, but they have the end prize in, in sight. And the other thing that I think businesses need to, you know, no one wants you to go out of business. You know, no, I mean, mm. people don't. But you have to demonstrate honesty in your innovation and honesty in what you're doing to transition more effectively. And that's where I think a lot of the puff pieces around sustainability are a real problem. Um, you know, and also I think the media is trying to make this into a device and we need to move from that as well. Oh, so true on that. Yeah, you, you know, kind of the oil and gas debate, I think I find is a fascinating one. And, um, yeah, I think even the most pro... Um, Okay, 
maybe not quite the most pro anti oil and gas lobbies, but um, you know, even uh, even many of the governments or you know sort of bodies around the world now are still saying, look, you know, okay, yes, we want to transition away from it, but you know, even in thirty years, oil and gas will still make up some part of the supply chain. Um, so, you know, everybody putting like strappy headlines together saying, yeah, you know, kind of going to be oil and gas free by 2050 is just, just but, bollocks. <laughs> but no one, but actually, no one says that. That's how it's been portrayed. The whole focus, particularly around the lobby, is no new oil and gas. We have the reserves. We mm. have already within the pipeline the energy reserves that we require to help that transition. So it's about new exploration and new um the, you know developing new structures mm. that are mm. going to be so highly emitting is the bigger problem mm. but also what i'd like to see a lot more of is kind of what's the track we, we've got to stop talking around the transition is complicated and wringing our hands and we don't know what we need to do and actually start putting the big the best minds that we've got around how do we transition to different um energy sources energy is a bedrock of economies and energy um, from both your homes and how your homes are heated. Yeah, it's key to life and society, right? You it's can't live without it. How everything moves around, how your businesses are operated. You know, all of these things are kind of incredibly important for, for, for societal success, but that doesn't mean that it needs to stay in the status quo. And I think that's the problem we've got is we're almost like opting for the status quo rather than kind of looking to something different in the future. And, you know, and also economies are reliant on, on different forms of energy. Look at Australia. Yeah. Go, back to, go back to Australia again. I mean, oh, yeah, like the mining capital of the world, right? Absolutely. But also what's been really frustrating, and this is exactly the conversations that we were having when I was in the union kind of, you know, over 20 years ago, was around we weren't investing in manufacturing and we're still living on the coattails of raw materials rather than kind of looking at what's the economy we want to be in the future what's the manufacturing or service-based economy that we can be but we but you know it's got a high gdp because of the raw materials they've got mm. and there are mm. options for employment but the employment opportunities in those sectors isn't as high as what you're going to get in services or manufacturing or other areas to kind of be able to sustain the economy you've got but I think this is getting off the <laughs> topic of, oh, of the like, role of cogs, but yeah, yeah, all true. But, uh, no, but it's interesting, and um, yeah, the the whole, uh, yeah, you know, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I mean, I do think a lot of companies are making, are certainly starting to make the right noises. I still think, yeah, there is probably a bit of, yeah, some of the comms need some work on it. Um, you know, the oil and gas industry, I think, is actually doing a a relatively good job at investing in ways of cleaning up how they produce it mining is still mining is still they're, they're probably doing a lot more than than yeah. oil and gas in some ways. but you know it's almost like but it's that the, that fantastic ad that um that was done a couple of uh well this year a couple of months ago and i'm lost the where it's from, but it was talking about the the financial services sector, and it's kind of like all the all the banks and the financial services are talking around, you know, where they're investing in renewable energy and where they're investing in innovation, and and then when you unpick all of that, because that's what they're talking about, it was like a minute percentage of their total business because they're still kind of investing in um, oil and gas or fossil fuels, and of course they mm. need to. I need to kind of help mm. the transition, but we need a bit more honesty around what proportion of what your spend is is on on 
transition for a future or maintaining the status quo. And so from a comms perspective, I'd like to kind of see, yes, we are doing all these interesting, exciting mm. things mm. around renewables, um, but we're also spending a lot on, um, you know, investing in oil and gas. And if you unpick their books and you unpick where the money is coming from and where it's moving around from, it's mm. still maintaining mm. a status quo. You know, and, and shout out to a fantastic kind of campaigning organisation, um, the Mother Tree. So you should look it up because they're really campaigning around how you as individuals or you as small business can use your money to drive change. And kind mm. of we've talked about all these different industries, but it's money that makes the world go around. It's money that can really drive yes. change and the financial systems. And, you know, and what I'd love to see is kind of them stepping up much more boldly into how they can use the financial products they've got to drive a more positive change in the future. And I'd love to see banks kind of really stand, and there have been some banks and some pension mm. providers and some insurers who've kind of made very, very bold claims around where they're going to invest now and where they're going to invest mm. in the future and where mm. they're going to put their money to drive change. I'd love to see more of that and I'd love to see more bold statements around that and I think there's a real opportunity for for financial services to kind of step into that fray because change will only happen if it's funded effectively and that will come back down to banks. Yeah, no, it's true and actually I think, um, yeah, when, when you do start doing a bit of a deep look into it and even a lot of the asset managers, you know, a lot of them now, you know, will either have a strategy or, you know, a couple of funds dedicated to it um, I don't think they say enough about it. No, and it's, it's often tinkering. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And you're right. It'll be, you know, it'll be a couple of billion worth of capital versus the X trillion they have in all yeah. of their other, yeah, yeah. All their other investments, right? So yeah, but that, but they'll talk about that kind of bit that kind of people will want to hear about, and I think mm. there's mm. a real opportunity for us to kind of step up and and be a lot more visible. And I think with COP. Um, coming up in the next couple of weeks, um, again, financial services are going to be front and centre around, you know, what they're fundamentally doing to drive change and to drive mm. that transition we need to do because mm. you need regulatory, I mean, this is what we started from the beginning, you need the regulatory framework that has the infrastructure and has the, the, the ability for these economies to grow but then you also need to have the right funding structures that kind of look at risk and look at that kind of growth will happen in the future. And connecting all of those pieces together is, again, where you'll have really interesting comms conversations around those trade-offs and around how do we make the changes we need to see. I mean, so there are really interesting organisations mm. like the UK Investment Bank, another one. I mean, look at how they talk around their role is around reducing the kind of the risk mandate so they can invest in projects and invest in infrastructure for the future. Mm. Um, mm. The bank may not be able to do currently because they they have their mm. own risk profiles around what they're going to do. So there's a real opportunity to kind of talk about things differently and talk about, um, you know, and then have the conversation with government and get mm. government to kind of lessen that risk as well. Yeah, and yeah, I think, you know, also another key part of the jigsaw that I don't think a lot of people talk about enough is, you know, we also need to get the insurers and the reinsurers on board and the actuaries because without them on board, large companies aren't going to do it because they're not going to be insured. So Yeah, and there was a there's a paper came out recently. Bit, isn't it? So, yeah, yeah. It's all connected. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. But yeah, there was a report that came out lately is that, like, you know, the insurers need to look at the, the ESG frameworks that they're 
um, that they're abiding by and make sure that they're fit for purpose. Um, again, so much of the conversation is around report, um, ESG reporting, which in my view is a backward look of what's been done rather than a kind of forward look around the transition you need to make and how you make transition and the levers you pull to make a kind of more effective transition. Um, and, mm. you know, reporting is a useful exercise because you need to lo- understand your business and where your impact is. Um, yes. But it's only a very small part of the puzzle. You know, just being able to say we know we have this impact in these areas mm. is only the the foundations to say we know we have this impact and this is our plan to reduce that impact into the future. Mm. And what I'd like to see is less about the backward look and the kind of the, the mm. ESG mm. and much more about the forward look and kind of building hope and opportunity and excitement around mm. what what is the future we want to see, you know, going back to what do I want my daughter to be coming into in 10 years' time? Because mm-hmm. um, I don't want this. <laughs> so, yes. Oh, yeah. And the ESG reporting thing, um, you're so right. It's looking backwards, but also um, it's based on stats and figures that, be careful how I say this, um, I can't wrap my head around how a large multinational tobacco company can score 80-something out of 100 and Tesla gets mid thirties out of a hundred. You think tobacco? Really? Eight out of ten? <laughs> I don't get but it. It's metrics, um, but then again, you're putting yeah, a value yeah. investment on a product, and it's it's because, and that's not how it's done. And you know, when they're looking at the reporting, they're looking at the the impact they have on planet, or the kind of you know how mm. they treat people on the social side of things not a value judgment around the the specific product that you're trying to sell and i think that gets us caught up in a different conversation rather than the one about the reporting of how what what they're reporting against um so yeah 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 good point yeah 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 good point i think that's probably the moral bit of me thinking yeah smoking causes lung cancer so therefore it should be naught <laughs> yeah but then that's that is not part of the report but then that's a bias judgment yes yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. i get it i hear you but yeah. It's, yeah yeah kind of thank you for putting it in my place but yeah no i yeah yeah can you make a good point but um yeah no um so look i always ask this question um who's the or or yeah who's who's your favorite ceo you've worked for in terms of their communications I don't think there's necessarily one favourite CEO. Um, there are a couple which I've kind of, you know, I was I was leaving Diageo um, when I had my daughter when um, Ivan came on board, but um, late Ivan Menezes, um, he and he had a real. And I was talking about with someone recently. He had a re- his own communication style. You know, he came in and was like, "I want to talk directly to the people who I who work for me or work in the company that I'm head of, and I want to do it in my own style of language." And of course, comms kind of were all up in arms, like, "Oh my god, we can't allow this. This is wrong. This is not what's going to happen." But over time, he absolutely developed his own voice, and that became a really important channel that was purely him. And I think owning his own voice, owning what he wanted to say and being really open and honest about it is, is incredibly important. And I've seen quite a, you know, a few leaders who are able to do that 
very, very well. And I don't think Com's role is to be the ghostwriter or the mouthpiece of leaders. I think our role is to coach, support and get our leaders to have their own voice. So I think that's a really mm. great example of a leader who did that and made that happen. And I think I'd like to see a lot more of that because the orchestration of comms is important, but it shouldn't be at the expense of really getting a connection with who that leader is, particularly mm. in terms of comms. Mm. Why, do, um, why do you think so many CEOs, and this is not all of them, by the way, but this is quite a few, why do you think quite a few don't necessarily don't necessarily lean on their internal comms director or CCO, but they'll have a corporate reputation external advisor just for them? Uh, maybe because, because they because want to think, have that yeah. external voice. I'd, I'd, yeah. Yes, <laughs> it, but, but you'd think, you know, surely the natural thing would be, yeah, help me with my internal voice, but also if you have someone in-house, you're aligning it to the brand as well, right? Yeah. So you've got the win-win. Um, yeah, that's a, yeah, it's, I've, I've never quite worked that out. No, um, but it's also who your trusted advisor is. And I mean, where you have those partnerships um, that kind of with your CCO and the CEO, and it's built on a, a, this is why you'll often see if a CEO moves on, the CCO will move on quite swiftly afterwards because they have such a partnership and they really understand each other's voices and it's a, and it's a partnership based on trust. And, mm. you know, when um, Paul Walsh was leaving Diageo, Ian Wright said straight away, then I'll be leaving as well because my, my tenure is tied to Paul. And, you know, he had his own voice and he knew he wouldn't be able to kind of develop that. And that was a really solid partnership and I learned so much from how, you know, Ian operated corporate affairs and it's definitely kind of mm. spent my own opinions on different things as well. Um, mm. And but it is about finding that trusted advisor. And it's like, you know, where is your loyalty? And unfortunately, or, or fortunately, your loyalty is to the business first and foremost. And, you know, that's how you need to kind of operate. But you should also be the critical mm. friend to be able to stand up to your CEO. And I think that's mm. where we don't see enough of. We, you know, and, and they don't accept the advice that they're given from their, their comms advisor. And we need to make sure that's done more effectively. And it is. comes back to ask the difficult questions. Uh, yeah, no, I won't. I I won't name the brand, but um, it's interesting. I was speaking to uh, to a commerce director the other day. He was uh, saying, yeah, they they had a very long standing brand sponsorship with with quite a high profile event. Always went down really well. Won quite a lot of business off the back of it as well. New CEO came in um, and binned it because they didn't like the topic of what the event was about. Yeah, nothing to do with whether it was good for the business or not. Yeah, that happens. And, you know, and what you'd hope is there'd be a bit more of an analysis around what the benefits are rather than individual things. But, you know, again, let me live in my utopian world of how people yes. make decisions rather than kind of yeah. the reality of it. <laughs> yeah, no, very true. Um, yeah, so finally, um, yeah, kind of, yeah. How can you help companies? How can they find you? Um, yeah, I guess kind of here's your elevator pitch. Okay. So my role is to ask difficult questions of what you want to do and what you are planning to do. It's a unique ability to come in and look at your strategy and look and ask the right questions to see if your strategy has the impact it needs to. 
the area that I'm most interested in the moment is how, does, how do businesses have less impact on planet and a better impact on people? And I will come in and ask you that and make sure that you are talking the talk in the right way, but also acting on what you say and claim you want to do. Great, super. And best way to find you? Uh, LinkedIn is usually where my home is, but of course, um, my you can find my all my contact contact details on that. And look for me on Natasha at spinningred.com. Smashing. Thank you very much. Yeah. And finally, anything you want to plug? Have you got any speaking engagements coming up or any events you're going to? Uh, not right now, but I'm always open to doing speaking engagements. I do like the sound of my own voice sometimes, as most comms people sometimes <laughs> do. Some do, some don't. Um, have lots of opinions on things, but uh, yeah. love to be able to, to do more. Great. Super. Ashing. Well, look, I've genuinely, I've loved the conversation. It's been really interesting and some really great points. So, I mean, thank you very much for coming on the Commerce Coffee Club podcast, Natasha. Been a pleasure. Thanks, Max.